it's kind of one and the same, ultimately, because a lot of modern architecture, it's an event. It's not just a static shape. People require a spectacle, even from architecture. Welcome to One to One. I'm Amelia, and my guest this week is George Sipin. You probably don't recognize George's name, but you're almost certainly familiar with his projects. After training as an architect in Moscow, Sipin moved to New York to study theater design. And it's now safe to say millions upon millions of people have seen his work. He's designed stage sets for the MTV VMAs, operas, Broadway plays, and the 2014 Winter Olympics opening ceremony at Sochi, among many other productions. We spoke about designing for theatrical and mass media performances and how his architectural training grounds his practice. Are you still in the Five Points studio? No, no. The whole point of, uh, well, one of the points of the book is, is is that we're kind of witnessing the destruction of the building. Yes, it's very dramatic, <laughs> really. I mean, I'm sure it's like very inspiring at the same time. Right, exactly. How long were you in that building? About 15 years. Oh, wow. I think it would be interesting for our audience to hear a little bit about your position in New York as a working designer and artist in that building in particular. And with that accumulation of 15 years of experience there, how your perspective on the city might have changed from that vantage point. Look, I've been, uh, you know, since moving to New York, I've been living in, the, in that area, but it's been transforming so fast. Uh, Long Island City now is a very slick, a new uh, and very expensive neighborhood. But at the time, it was um, still a place untouched since 1930 or something, because the all the movie studios are around there. The film, they were shooting the films right next to that building all the time because you didn't have to build any sets. It just looked like exactly like, you know, 70 years ago or more. <laughs> so uh, the first time I... um when I found that place, it was terrifying because it was already a ruin and there were a lot of sweatshops there. And the space that I took was a form of sweatshop and it, it just looked looked like a medieval prison. Very inspiring place to create. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I knew the space was very beautiful if you if you clean it up. And so we, we renovated the, the space and uh, opened up the windows and removed uh, enormous chains hanging from the ceiling. And uh, all of a sudden, it was sunny and beautiful. But still, the building itself and all the staircases and the halls, it was all, all, everything was covered with graffiti. And it was something about that that I just, I didn't quite know how much it would influence me eventually. And also the place evolved. It just it gradually became more and more known as a kind of graffiti mecca. And there was a graffiti school in the building, strangely enough, even though I don't mm. really know what you do when you graduate. And then uh, they started inviting these big graffiti stars. So it just became this booming center for street art. So at first it kind of began as something that you could escape into. And then it, as it got this higher profile, it suddenly was the subject of attention. Exactly. And then, then all of a sudden you, you felt uh, a little more exposed in a good way because there were always crowds around the, the building. And then, of course, it's a, it's across PS1, which is uh, part of MoMA Museum. So, uh, and the huge rock concerts there on the weekend. So out of nowhere, because it was really an industrial neighborhood, all out of nowhere, it just felt like a, an art center. It was short-lived. Now it's all new glass skyscrapers, but... Um, 
that was a, a sort of a moment. So I'd like to go back a bit. I always like to ask guests specifically about their architectural educational experience. And while you are now most prominently known as a set designer, you were trained as an architect in the Soviet Union and studied in Moscow before moving to New York to study theater design. And not a very, you know, it's not a very unremarkable necessary transition. Like it makes a lot of sense for the specific kind of designs and abilities and technical training that you might receive in architecture school. But I'm I'm wondering specifically, what are some of the maybe softer skills or just the kind of temperament that you might have developed as an architecture student that you were able to take into set design? Uh, look, it's a good question. I think the school in Moscow that I went to, which is actually the only architectural school, purely architectural school in the Soviet Union, is quite well known and it uh, it was formed after early in 20th century uh, Russian uh, constructivists. There was a whole group and they formed a school then uh, and then it was reorganized and eventually became this particular school. And on one hand, now I realize, especially nowadays, it felt, you know, it feels like it was very old-fashioned in the sense that it was really an art school as well, where we took sculpture, paintings, very traditional, based on, I think, on French architecture schools, you know, what are they called, like old-fashioned renderings with inks and stuff. So it felt very, very artistic, but but at the same time, because the reality was kind of grim and architects weren't building interesting things, the school became a place where very talented teachers and students also were very interesting. Uh, it was a concentration of talent there. But a lot of the work was very conceptual. And uh, we did some international competitions. And it was almost a form of protest to create something that would could never be built. It was more about um, kind of philosophy of things. So I already got that um, germ of, um, you know, doing something that is is not architecture. <laughs> so did you have dreams of, of, although while you still were an architecture student, did you just presume that I will, of course, graduate and then work in a traditional architecture practice? Not really. First, I was it, it still, you know, it was very exciting to, to be there. And I actually, I studied urban planning, which was the most interesting department in the school. So that already makes it a little more theoretical. But I, I loved it. I was very, very inspired. But then when I left the school, um, the, the reality was, was not that exciting. And then when I moved to New York, I was an architectural firm here for a little bit and uh, I just felt I needed to open up and, and kind of develop artistically more. But I wasn't really planning to work in theater, never. I, I never thought it could become a, a serious occupation. I just, and I went to graduate school here in New York, but it was just, uh, for me, it was just a way to to continue, to just to have a few more years where I can experiment with things. And then I was I was planning to come, come back and continue uh, in architecture. Well, in a way, you can see set design as kind of like a proto-architectural practice where you're designing environments and you're designing set pieces that are meant to be convincing as architectures to an audience, at the very least, in a narrative. And you can kind of set that out as a as an idea, as a not necessarily obviously functioning program of architecture, but something that kind of hints at that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Essentially, it's the same, even though gradually I was discovering uh, crucial differences, obviously. But yeah, you just shape the space. You you have to, in some ways, it's also very practical. People, people have to occupy mm-hmm. the space and it has to be comfortable and uh, workable on, on many levels. The difference for me was the fact that A, you're dealing with other forms, you know, clearly you're dealing with literature or music, poetry, sculpture. And I realized my training as an architect was a huge advantage because my sense of space was perhaps a little more developed than other set designers. And I started doing this crazy, you know, very dimensional things. And every, everyone thought it was, it was just unbuildable and impossible. But the reality is, you know, when you, especially when you work with talented directors, they appreciate that they appreciate the challenge just uh, working with with space that is impossible because it makes the performance to do something impossible and I, I started kind of you know I, I, I felt more and more confident that um, this is the way to go and it was generally it was a moment in, uh, in design where old-fashioned flat scenery was was completely uh, going away can I ask then if you were so surprised by this transition into set design. How did you first fall into it and what was what kind of convinced you to stay? Well, very simple. Uh, when I was um, graduating, I, I spoke to my professor and I said, do you think I will ever work? Because there was this notion in the school that George will, will never work. He's too crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you are something of a character. You were known in that in that sphere. Yeah, it's just, you know, my work was was too out there. And he said, you most likely you'll never work. But if you do work, you'll probably work at the map in 10 years. Look, what, what happened is I came out of school and I was immediately hired by um, Peter Sellers, a, a young opera director and, uh, and theater director. And, and the first show I had to design, and he was just giving the post of, uh, and he became the head of uh, so-called American National Theater at the Kennedy Center in Washington. So I've never designed a theater ever in my life, and all of a sudden I'm dealing with an with enormous <laughs> stage, uh, one of the biggest stages in America, I think, stages in America, uh, the Kennedy Center. So, and, and that's how it all started, you know. So when those first conversations start happening between you and the director, and you, you have no built proof of, of these, well, other than what you produced in school, how did you kind of get into developing that relationship with the director? Because I can see an easy corollary to the relationship between an architect and the client working with a young architect or, or someone who has little built work to their name and how to establish that kind of creative and professional relationship with someone that you're is going into this very long-term ambitious partnership with. Well, it's just a, a, meeting, a meeting of the minds. First of all, Peter, the director, was younger than me. He was very, very young. And uh, he, uh, I think he, he went to Harvard and uh, his thesis was on uh, Russian avant-garde or something like that. So uh, there, were, there were points of connections. And he wanted someone who knows nothing about theater in order to do something that's never been done before. So uh, I guess I was just lucky. <laughs> And the projects you've since racked up are really on a scale above, in terms of theater productions, they're very much on kind of the biggest scale you can get to. I'm thinking of, in particular, the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics opening ceremony, which is, of course, just a momentous event to not only have happen and not screw up, but to actually create all the individual elements that also go into it. 
I'm wondering for a production on that scale, how do you start putting something like that together? And how do you, in the actual execution of it, how do you make sure there's a narrative going through everything? How much were you involved in that creation of that specific narrative for that ceremony? Well, it was uh, it was very interesting because it was a, a complete fusion of um, architecture, technology, uh, and the narrative. Because uh, when I arrived, I went to Moscow. They, uh, they showed me the plans of the stadium, and you know, it, it was one of the mo- uh, those moments when my architectural background was very useful uh, because immediately uh, two things. First of all, I asked uh, the event that was supposed to take place in in February, and I said, "What is the weather in February?" usually. <laughs> and then we looked at, uh, you know, typical weather and patterns of wind and snow. And it turns out there's no way you can do the show in the open stadium. And, and the stadium was designed. And the stadium was half built. And I was crazy enough to say, look, I think we have to build a roof. <laughs> <laughs> and it was less than two years before the opening. And just the madness of this idea uh, was so shocking that, um, Somehow, somehow it was approved. But uh, look, the reason I'm saying it's, it's, it's very connected to the narrative because the way the stadium was designed, it was, uh, it was a typical design, two kind of two halves and then open a sky between the halves where the soccer field eventually was supposed to be. And I, and imagine the show as a kind of, um, a- endless movement of elements and people in that space between the two halves where I was, I was, I was, I was thinking of building the roof and building series of tracks. It was like, uh, almost like creating a railroad, a series of railroad tracks, but upside down. On one hand, it was very technological and very architectural idea, but it was also a central metaphor for the entire show because I imagine the show where this, this elements was constantly move and that was be the movement of Russian history. And then, uh, you know, the ra- narrative kind of evolved by itself because clearly if you go with history, you, you know, you, you immediately have, you know, it breaks into chapters and you have a chapter one and chapter two different periods of Russian history, but more more than that, I felt the fact that we would suspend everything would um, uh, and would have a, this a show that where almost everything flies is a reflection of Russian spirit and Russian character and always this obsession with flying and uh, being perhaps uh, the country of uh, dreamers, but uh, not necessarily a country where things on the ground are, that are going that well. You know, so, so, so that it, it just, it just became, all of a sudden it became the central, uh, central thrust, the central metaphor for the whole show. Well, certainly flying has become a bit of a theme in a lot of your, I wouldn't, I shouldn't say a lot, but in some of your more prominent works as specifically the designer for Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. I'd like you to speak a little bit specifically about that project in a bit, but I want to kind of pull this thread a little bit more of, of working with the narrative. Of course, something like the opening ceremony that's a kind of a tradition in a lot of these opening ceremonies is that the narrative goes through the hosting cities or the hosting country's origin story, however they might want to then cast themselves. And you get, of course, famous movie directors and a bunch of different 
creatives that create what exactly that narrative will look like. And of course, there's a lot of particular or possible political bends to it that, of course, can always come out. But in the end, you're still trying to create this narrative through the environment. And with something like the set design for an opera or for a Broadway play or such that, that you're working on, that is entirely has to be supported through the set design. It has to be kind of, they have to be perfectly in sync, the narrative and the set design, or else the audience's sense of dis- suspension of disbelief and kind of going on with the story is going to be compromised. But at the same time, you're working with these stories when they're Broadway plays or these operas, like, for example, Spider-Man or War and Peace or Don Giovanni or The Magic Flute, Little Mermaid, all of these productions and these stories that are extremely well-known, or if not well-known, extremely prominent in like the cultural history of that piece of, of art. And so it's not exactly like you have so much to work with in a way that it might be a little bit overwhelming because you already have so many times the story has been told and imagined that it has it comes with a certain kind of cultural baggage or, or at least a an image baggage where you where people come to expect a certain thing or they think they know the story. So when you're setting out to design and you have a very powerful aesthetic and a very dramatic one, are you kind of having all of the prior images of these stories in the back of your head when you're designing or do you try to completely ignore them? <laughs> Yeah, you just uh, took words out, out of my mouth uh, because I completely <laughs> ignore them. Look, it, I think that's the only way. I, I, I never really look at what's been done before. Um, maybe by accident sometimes you you have an image in, or in your mind, but it really doesn't play any role. And especially in, uh, the reason in the beginning I was doing some theater, but eventually I started working a lot in opera. And that's exactly because the narrative in opera doesn't really play such a big role. I think when you design the space and you design you design the environment, what the beauty is that you can relate directly to the music. And the audience, as you said, the stories, you know, most of the audience either knows them or they can read a synopsis. That's not a problem. And those stories are usually silly. They're not the point, really. <laughs> but they respond to something that doesn't work directly, doesn't illustrate anything. You don't need to illustrate. It's something else. It's like music. You know, you just, you just create essentially kind of a kinetic uh, sculpture that, that, yes, it sparks something in the audience's imagination, but not in a very literal, not, dir- not, not in a very direct way. And that gives you a lot of freedom. So if you approach it that way, from kind of very, very personal, just go with your personal perception, most likely, hopefully, you will come up with something that's never been done before with this particular piece. And then when you did work for Spider-Man, the aesthetic of the set is... For people who are familiar with the comic, they'll recognize that there is this kind of comic book aesthetic, that there is this flat graphical translation into the set design that through various perspectival tricks or just extreme scale plays create this really dramatic in the kind of way that you know, almost kitschy dramatic in the way that a comic book is kind of kitschy dramatic, that you have all these forced panels where the, in order to create action in static imagery, these perspectives have to be really strong. And for someone who has personally not seen the actual production, but has in your monograph, Invisible City, has seen through a few images and kind of get a feel for what it's like to be an audience member in that kind of production, it's incredibly dramatic and incredibly um, affecting while still being very much related to what might be a familiar aesthetic through the comic books. Was that something that you had also kind of just immediately known from the beginning, like this is the way it has to be? Yes. Look, first of all, let me just say opera and Broadway show are two different worlds. Because in opera, you you get 
people that, especially in Europe, uh, are much more prepared and knowledgeable uh, about art, and uh, and you can go with uh, much more sophisticated aesthetic. And generally, the stakes are lower, strangely enough, because you don't have this incredible commercial pressure. But on Broadway show like Spider-Man, you have to work on many levels because it, it has to be accessible to children, it has to be accessible to adults that have no understanding of uh, art at all. And then, and yet, you also have to. And there are a lot of uh, sophisticated people that come to the show as well. So that what makes it uh, makes it incredibly difficult. But the other thing is is that, and and by the way, that's the main difference between uh, designing a show like that and architecture is that in a way the image is important but it's not the most important thing the most important thing is is the movement which is by the way very difficult to illustrate in the book and that's the main struggle to come up with this with these transformations with of the space and the movement imagining things you know it's hard enough to conceive the space and the shapes and the sculpture it has to move it has to transform you have to conceive those m moments and it took me uh, many many years to, to start thinking that way and sometimes when i work with architects i'm, I'm kind of surprised that you know how, how static they're thinking it's you mm. know because at this point i always think of uh, kinetic things and that and that's the key and especially for show like Spider-Man, which was very, very advanced technologically, and, you, and with the technology that we have today, you, you literally can create a completely kinetic environment, not just on stage around the audience, and uh, not only people fly, but the, the sets fly, transform, open, close, and by the way, that was the very first idea when I looked at this comic book illustrations. You know, I thought, well, I need to take this flat graphics and explode them into space. And then I had this idea about pop-up books, and everyone said it's just impossible to, to build in real scale because uh, the beauty of, uh, you know, of paper is you, you just cannot imitate the quality of paper in, in larger scale. And it was a struggle. It was very, very difficult and very expensive. But we experimented, and, uh, and a lot of the sets, they because, as you know, uh, Broadway theaters are very, very small. And even though we had one of, one of the biggest theaters, it's still small compared to opera houses for example so things would come in as flat kind of elements and then open up sometimes open up into the audience uh, and then collapse back into a flat unit and and fly away so in in that moment of uh, transformation was very interesting what advice then would you give to architects to be better graspers of that kinetic energy that you feel is lacking in their practice Look, I, I feel architecture clearly is, is, is moving in the same direction. Maybe it's just my perception, but uh, very often now uh, we have to design the show and kind of build the building around that, strangely enough. Sometimes the technology required for the show is more expensive than, than the shell uh, that you need. But it's it's kind of one and the same, ultimately, because a lot of modern architecture, it's uh, it's an event. It's not just a static shape. People require a spectacle, even from architecture. And of course, with all this LED lights and this, uh, you know, facades that uh, become uh, something more than just a dead surface. It's it's alive with lights and and, and even the interior space of course, spaces very often need to transform. So I think as we're moving into the future, architecture will become more and more kinetic. 
I want to return a little bit to a few things you were saying about your work distinguished between in opera houses or for operas and for Broadway shows and the kind of very hard lines sometimes that I can draw on different audiences that the Broadway audience has to be so basically a mass appeal production and something like opera, you have a much wider creative agency to kind of explore different ideas because you're presuming that your audience has a little bit higher tolerance for some challenging stuff. I want to then compare that to your work for the 1999 MTV Video Music Awards stage set, because that seems like something as mass market as you can get in a way. But your design for it, which I just found absolutely fantastic, is a combination of a a literal integration, a spearing of sorts, of the never actually built Vladimir Tutlin's Tower, also known as the Monument to the Third International, which is piercing the Statue of Liberty. And this is on the stage in a kind of, you know, TV central spot seen by however many hundreds of millions of people watching this. And it's, as you've written or described it as, a kind of welcoming of the new millennium and a realization of that tower as an image of modernism and as an image of future forward-looking populations that never actually got built in Russia. Tell me about your thought process behind merging those two icons in particular together and your relationship with just MTV as a as a concept and as a client. Obviously, you know, not that many people know what Tutland's Tower is, but that's okay. They maybe don't know, but they sense that this environment is um, is cool, dynamic, you know, it, you kind of program this uh, maybe a, a little more sophisticated metaphors uh, that you know about, but it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessary that everyone know. They just, it's it's a lot of it is uh, works on subliminal level. And uh, mm-hmm. in MTV people, they just came in and they said, they said, well, this is so cool, you know. And they were looking at this from a slightly different point of view, you know, how it's going to uh, read on television, you you know how we're gonna shoot this and how we get this and how we're gonna get this incredible angles and incredible perspective and they said well we never had something so dimensional so architectural on the screen it's just you know we're getting this incredible shots and they just went with it the problem was though because mtv involves many different artists and uh, it was actually now i'm told it was one of, one of the most interesting years before mtv began to kind of fade where we had you know Britney Spears and uh, and uh, Paul McCartney showed up. Yeah, so you have different performers, and in theory they they require different different environment and different sets. But strangely enough, all of them looked at it and said, "Great, that's fantastic." You know, it just somehow it worked with the, with with their music. It worked with their image, and they would add a couple of smaller elements. But essentially, they were excited and they worked with it. The only person we had a lot of trouble with is uh, Ricky Martin. Ricky <laughs> Martin really hated it and demanded that we just cover it up for his number and, and do something totally different. He was the only one. Wow. So he just said he didn't like it. Yeah, it just, for him, it was too brutal or something, you know, too modern. He wanted something soft and fluid and fabrics and whatever, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But with all the rappers, it was, you know, Eminem, it was just great. It just clicked. And that's, that's the same thing about opera, by the way, just going back for a second. You know, the music is, it just has this uncanny possibility where, where the most unbelievably different things somehow click 
you know, and, and of course, when we know architecture is frozen music. But on every level, the music is open. It just gives you, it just inspires and gives you incredible possibilities. It doesn't mean it's, it's random. You still need to connect with it on a very deep level, which very often is, is mysterious even to yourself. But it, it just happens. Some strange electricity takes place between the music and the space. So aside from set design, you also work as a sculptor. You've had pieces um, exhibited and installed in many places, including at the 2002 Venice Biennale. And, and so specifically for in relationship to the way that you exhibit your work, what feedback does that give you into doing more set design? How does that help inform that overall creative practice? Look, it, uh, basically it becomes a lab for exploring different ideas. It's very easy because... You know, ultimately it's a show business, right? You get a job, then you get another job, and uh, it can become, you know, you, lo- you you can you can lose the sense of yourself and uh, the sense of meaning, and um, you just have to continue exploring something else on um, a different plane. And and this these things feed feed on each other, obviously. You also have an incredible audience of so many different architects that come to Venice as a kind of pilgrimage for that kind of stuff. And I'm assuming we'll have then an incredible community of people seeing your work and being able to engage in a dialogue with them about how it might influence later stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it was a very inspiring event, actually, because you meet architects, you see other things. And, and I'm mostly inspired by architecture in my work. So it just takes you out of... Uh, I mean, it's, it's like if you work in, in one field... You just have to stay in another field in, in, in order in order to to feel always f- fresh when you do something. You know, you, I, I'm trying to you know always keep that distance, not to immerse myself too deeply in the in the day to day business of creating shows. You just need that larger perspective. One of my um, my most favorite artists, who's a an animator, or she's not technically an animator, she's a, an artist who draws for a lot for animated works. Um, her name is Lisa Hannah Waltz, and she's spoken to just choosing random activities, more or less, not at all fueled necessarily by interest, but just deciding one day to, I'm going to take up horseback riding, or I'm going to start ceramic work or something like that, just so that it can kickstart or just provoke something else in her creative practice otherwise, as she continues being a visual artist and a cartoonist throughout her professional activities as an artist. And I just find that so fascinating that you have to kind of do that. You have to retain some kind of provocative perspective that forces you to question whatever you are practicing otherwise. Um, Are there other things that you hope to engage with or kind of investigate for that purpose in the future, other activities you might pursue. Right. Look, when when you describe uh, her experience, I became jealous because I I just I have no you know on on one hand, as I said, you know I I try different things, but it's still within a certain certain uh, you know visual world, and I have no other hobbies. I I'm not interested <laughs> in anything. You know, I, I don't have any cars, and you know, it's really on some level, it's like you as if you're doing one big pro one show one big project all your life and, and these things are so 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 connected um i think you you just have to uh, be that obsessive about this thing <laughs> otherwise it just doesn't work so what are you working on right now if you can talk about it of course right right well uh, on, on tuesday another show opens at the map i'm working uh, i'm working on um 
and uh, Cirque du Soleil show. But the most interesting project I'm, I'm dealing with right now is an, uh, I design an amusement park in Moscow. First, we, we, you know, I just came up with, uh, with a concept. And, um, and it's part of a much, much bigger, maybe the biggest park in the world, built in Soviet times, it's quite famous there. And, uh, and they needed someone who can conceptualize how to deal, and it's kind of dilapidated now, and they, they just don't know where to go with it. And essentially, we kind of uh, created a world of the future. It sounds, um, you know, it can be a little uh, trite, but, but, but I, I think the way we've, we've found an angle where it's, uh, it's slightly ironic. It's it's almost in that park. I thought, okay, we we have this other park that was built as a as a kind of dream world, uh, you know, of a kind of Soviet Soviet uh, Las Vegas or something. And that's how it was conceived, you know, paradise for the workers. Now we have this completely failed idea, you know. But what if I, in my little amusement park, which is not that little, by the way, what if we build the communism? And, you know, because it can only be an amusement park. <laughs> and that's, that's, but of course, in a very warm, kind of ironic, almost childish way. So, um, so I'm kind of excited about this project. Before you face the realities of, um, you know, financing bureaucracy, it's, it's so much fun to think of those things and design them. But now we're just beginning to, to, to see whether, um, whether we can actually realize the uh, the first phase will it include attractions that are specific to russian history and culture or is it more of a well yes but in a very indirect way uh, in the mm. sense that on one hand I, I i definitely wanted to create something that is uh, not disney and it's not universal it's a different context and to create something unique uh, but it's also it also has this very naive uh, almost childish uh, ambience uh, that is universal look it's complicated because it's not disney D- I, f- I feel disney is too aids to specifically uh, uh, connected to the uh, movies but also it's been built a long time ago and it, it's an entertainment machine mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is something different it's it's more more of a dream it's 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 really it's really a park and the attractions are really integrated into into this park of the future it sounds almost uh, similar in kind of in terms of how it's used by the people who live near it or as a public space as well as a place of amusement and a kind of vacation spot or so to Tivoli in Copenhagen, which has so much history to it and is extremely rich in kind of the cultural capital of that area, but nonetheless not the entertainment machine of Disney. It's not as commercialized. Yeah, we, we, we looked at Tivoli a lot and people um, at the park wanted something similar, but we, we also felt Tivoli is, is fantastic, but it's really uh, a very European, very, very cozy a little thing and uh, in moscow the scale you just have to reflect the scale it's a different sensibility but yes it's very interesting that you mentioned in tivoli because uh, the spirit of it is is quite good it's, it's something we're, we're trying to capture it sounds like an absolutely fantastic project and very exciting with a lot of a lot of opportunities to try out new things and george i so much appreciate you joining me on the podcast it was great to speak with you thank you it was great 
Thanks for listening to Arcanic Sessions one-to-one with George Seifen. Dina Lovoynov edits the podcast, and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. And special thanks to Princeton Architectural Press for helping coordinate this interview. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can always email us at connect at arconnect.com. Thanks again for listening.